So disability, you know, can absolutely have a huge impact on your match. You know, you can't control good and bad, you know, body days, if you will. So it's just something that a lot of para athletes have to learn to work with. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! They're all completely gassed. They've given it everything on the global bucket. Oh, yeah! Oh! Oh! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But that is an Olympic championship. Ready? Hello, fans of Shook Liston, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Hot. <laughs> it's really steamy. I'm hot, but that gets me ready for Tokyo. This is my temperature training. <laughs> it's very true. I mean, it's been really hot and humid, too, here. Remember, remember when we would talk about, oh, let's worry about the temperature in Tokyo. <laughs> Those were the days, right? Those were the days, man. <laughs> and now it's all COVID, COVID, COVID. The public doesn't want the games. But you know what? I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but cases are falling in Japan. COVID cases are falling. And vaccination rates are going up steadily. Right. They're still pretty low, but they're going up. And public sentiment is improving. But we'll see, you know, things are chugging along. We're doing okay. And remember when we thought COVID was going to be killed by the summer temperatures? Oh, yeah. That's... Oh, yeah. Well, I guess... How foolish we were. Well, you know, that's just proof that we're not epidemiologists. <laughs> we're podcasters. As if people needed more proof. All right. Uh, before we get into today's interview, we would like to take a second to give a shout out to our Patreon patrons. These folks help us keep the show going with their financial contributions. Well, and their support helps keep this show going, especially as we look ahead to Beijing 2022, where we will have an on the ground presence. If you appreciate what this show does for you and would like to show some support, check out our Patreon site at patreon.com slash flame alive pot and as we're getting closer to tokyo be sure to share with your friends that we're here that's right because we like to find more of our people we've had more people join the facebook group which has been awesome so it's it's a lot of fun to be in there all right today we are talking with mckenna gear mckenna is a paralympic bronze medalist in the sport of rifle shooting at Rio, she competed in the R4 Mixed 10-Meter Air Rifle Standing SH2 and earned 24th place. And then she also competed in the R5 Mixed 10-Meter Air Rifle Prone SH2, where she took home the bronze medal. We talked with McKenna about how rifle works on the Paralympic side of the sport. Take a listen. Thank you so much for joining us. So you do two events. You do the 10-Meter Air Rifle and then also the, the three-position so I have, I have three of. Oh, you have three events. So you I have two. Did you do two in Rio? I had two in Rio. They were both airgun, uh, airgun standing and airgun prone. And then the year after Rio, they added fifty meter prone for okay. me. Okay, and that's the one that's outdoors. Yes. Okay, we'll talk about the how the elements affect the shooting in a bit, but let's go with the ten meter air rifle, uh, standing and prone, standing. 
in your class is, is sitting, correct? It is. You are in a wheelchair. And what is the purpose of this event? And on the Paralympic side of shooting, uh, we are classified based off of our disability. There are two main classifications based off of your upper body. So if you have an upper body disability that affects your ability to support the rifle on your own, you are called an SH2 shooter, which means your, your gun rests on a literal spring to try and mimic the Olympic position as much as possible. So the top of the spring um, is a, a Y shape, flat bottom, and then two sides. Gun rests there, supports the gun for you. So if you have an upper body impairment like I do, you don't have to um, support it on your own. The other classification is called SH1, and that means that you don't have an upper body disability uh, that affects your ability to hold the rifle. So you support it on your own, an example of an SH1 disability could be a lower leg amputation. So something that wouldn't affect how you held a rifle or a pistol. So standing air gun, I am sitting in my wheelchair. The gun is rested on the spring stand, but I do not have any support under my elbows. So besides the spring stand, it is just the stand in my body supporting the gun uh, while I'm shooting. So with that spring, when, when you say it mimics the Olympic one, is it a spring because it can kind of move if you're not careful? And that's yes. because of, uh, if you can use that arm for support, your arm could move? Yes. So okay. they don't want us shooting off of a bench rest. They want to have some dynamic movement in it that we have to work to control. Because an Olympic shooter uh, would not have any of that added support. So they wanted to bring that movement in a little bit for us. How mobile is that spring? Is it really sensitive? Depends on how you look at it. I don't consider it sensitive anymore um, because I've been shooting with it for over 10 years. But when you're first starting out, I think some people or, you know, even someone trying it is a little surprised at how much movement it does have. What do you do with your body to control it? Like, do you lift weights or something to, to help keep it stable? We do. Uh, I am in the gym four days a week, two days a week, uh, or two of those sessions are uh, strength. And then two days a week is cardio. So helping have a lower heart rate, which help, you know helps keep your body still. And then a lot of my strength sessions are focused on core and shoulder because to make things even more exciting on the Paralympic side, not only do you have the two main classifications, but there are subcategories within those classifications to bring everybody in that same category up to an equal level. So for me, I do use a wheelchair, but I can also get up and walk around. So I have a fairly decent core. Someone who has a high spinal cord injury isn't going to have the same core that I do. So they're allowed to shoot with the backrest. I am not. In addition to that, a quadriplegic who has even more limited use of their upper body can have a stronger spring that doesn't move as much as the weak spring. So I shoot with a weak spring and no backrest while, you know, one of my teammates shoots with a strong spring and no backrest because his upper body is more affected by his disability. 
Do they then test the spring and make sure? With, with, I mean, I'm guessing they do all these checks before competition, and spring would be one of the things. Yes, they do. They check just about every piece of equipment that we use. Everything falls under pretty strict standards um, so that we're all on the same level playing field when we go to competition. Is the target the same as the Olympic target? It is. Ginny Thrasher was telling us it's like the period on the end of a 12.5. Yes. Our air rifle, yeah, our targets are the same between the Olympic and the Paralympic side. Is your gun modified any differently? Personally, mine is not, but they can be. Okay. Okay, depending on your classification and your abilities? Yes, so I know some quadriplegics will have um, trigger adaptions that they'll make to either make it longer or easier to reach or whatever it may be. Some people will add a hand rest in a different place um, since the gun is supported by the spring stand. Our non-trigger hand can rest on the gun in another area. So that could be an adaption is to make an easier to reach handhold. Interesting. The other question I had was about why were some people in chairs and, and some people in wheelchairs? Yeah, it can be pretty interesting. Some people shoot out of wheelchairs, some people bring their own platform. And then on the SH1 small bore side, for someone who has just a lower leg amputation, they will actually shoot their prone event laying on the ground, just like an Olympic shooter would. So how does your prone event work? So prone in comparison to standing, Both of them sitting in my wheelchair, gun rested on the spring stand. But for prone, I have a platform that I attach to my wheelchair and I get to rest my elbows on it. And that provides the same stability as us lying down. As if I was laying on the ground, yes. So uh, I I did read that those are special tables. Yes. (laughs) what, What are like the specs of that? And I'm guessing they cost a pretty penny. Specs differ for every single shooter. Majority of us have the tables custom made for either for our wheelchair or it can be a standalone table that has a chair either attached or detached depending on preference. And because they're all custom made, yes, they are, can be quite expensive. (laughs) What are we talking? Because people, I mean, I'm a fan. I want to know this stuff because sometimes in three to sport is... Getting into a sport is easy, and then you find out it's it's a it's a commitment. So my first table, uh, the table that I competed on in Rio, actually was, uh, I believe it was around twelve hundred dollars, and the machinist that made it donated uh, a portion of his time to me and what I was doing. When we first get Paralympic shooters started, um, at least like at the training center for camps and such. We actually go thrift shopping and find donated walkers and we put a piece of plywood on top of the walker. And that is a very entry level table that we can use to get people started in the sport. Now, are you wearing the weighted jacket and the the particular pants as well? Shooting from the wheelchair, I do not wear the pants, but I do have the uh, leather and canvas jacket. And is that purpose the same to kind of weigh you down and keep you stable? Yeah. Yeah. Help with stability. Keep your heart rate away from the gun as much as possible. Um. (laughs) Away from the gun. Wait, 
Wait, Jenny did not tell us about this. What? I don't know a better question than what's up with that. Your heart rate, especially, I mean, it can affect both small bore and air gun. I see it a little bit more in air gun. As your heart beats, it will make the set, you know, make the gun move. Or it can. Some people have figured out positions where the heart rate won't affect it as much, but I can definitely notice that when I have an elevated heart rate, I see a lot more movement um, in the sights. Okay, so if you have to shoot between heartbeats. Very difficult. Yeah, I'm just trying to think like, and let me sort of preface that by saying, how do you breathe when you shoot? Are you holding your breath? Yeah, so when we shoot, we're usually, you know, taking a couple of deep breaths during our shot process. And then for me personally, I exhale about halfway on that last deep breath and hold it from there to take my shot. Because if you breathe, the sight moves. Yeah, yeah, you're moving a lot. If you're taking a breath and trying to shoot, doesn't doesn't work very well. And we're talking millimeters, so a heartbeat or half a breath, and you miss. Yes, yeah. yeah, because missing for us is, you know, not shooting a 10. Yeah, because I knew that in biathlon it makes a big deal, but you're also doing cardio ahead of your shooting, but I didn't quite realize it was the same, same deal for yes. uh, shooting sports. So with uh, biathlon, they just have to hit that black circle, right? Mm-hmm. Our black circle is about the same size, but we have to hit a half millimeter dot in the middle of it. So we may not be doing cardio beforehand. However, our our bullseye is a half millimeter dot. So let me ask you a question about your disability, because it does affect muscles, I guess, in your extremities. Do I have that correct? Yes, I was born with arthrogryposis, so... Arthrogryposis usually comes with uh, the loss of muscle at birth, along with the contracture of joints. So are you dealing at all with involuntary twitching or contractions that you have to manage as well? Occasionally. I don't have, in, in my opinion, I don't think that I have as much as someone who is paralyzed because um, there can be a lot of involuntary movements because of the lack of signals occurring. Um, I know a lot of athletes will get spasms in their leg and have actually had athletes need their their coach or their, their physical therapist or sports therapist um, come onto the line and help them through uh, their spasms. When that happens, do you also have like a time limit? You have to shoot your shots within a certain amount of time? Yes, we do. And the time limits will vary or differ a little bit from the Olympic side, but it's usually about 30 seconds uh, at the lowest, you know, lowest point uh, for a shot. So if somebody has a spasm and they need to have it kind of worked out, do do they get kind of some time compensation or it's just you got to figure out how to make it work in the time limit? You have to figure out how to make it work. So disability, you know, can absolutely have a huge impact on your match, you know, you can't control good and bad, you know, body days, if you will. So it's just something that a lot of para athletes have to learn to work with. Now, I would think that would be also a mental part of it, because so much of this is mental, the concern about that, and the anxiety related to is something going to go wrong with my body uh, at that moment. That absolutely can be an issue. And again, something that we have to learn to deal with uh, because everybody is so different and, you know, 
have different reactions to travel and jet lag and different food. <laughs> so you are wearing glasses. And since when, when Ginny was talking about the vision, I can't imagine wearing glasses and doing shooting. So tell me about just what your, what your vision is and how that do you wear contacts? Do you wear glasses? How does that work with, with your shooting? So I have a astigmatism and my optometrist actually said that my astigmatism is so slight that most people wouldn't even notice it. But because what we're doing is so precise, uh, especially, you know, an air gun, not only are we shooting at a half millimeter dot, but they break that down into tens of millimeters too, that I noticed it and I, you know, had issues with it. So in the past, they have recently changed this rule. Uh, we had these really funky looking like robot spy glasses kind of. So it had a, uh, a very small lens about the size of a quarter. And the way that those glasses worked, you could move each part and make sure that as you were shooting, the lens was perfectly parallel with the sight because you want to make sure that you're looking through the best part of the prescription. Now we are allowed to mount the lens directly to the site. So that helps make things a little bit easier. Okay. So you have a lens mounted on your gun so that you don't have to wear your glasses. Yes. While you, while you compete. Okay. That's interesting. Allison, hope for you. I know. Well, I, my astigmatism is pretty bad, so I, I would certainly notice it. So you would have the lens then the rear sight and the front sight kind of all lined up. Yes. I'm just totally fascinated by the equipment and all of this <laughs> because there's so many such small little pieces that affect the whole picture. There are so many moving parts to the sport. And then, you know, with para, you have the added adaptions that you make as well. Do they allow you to lock your wheelchair in place? They do. So we're allowed to put our brakes on so we don't move around. They, we were not allowed to lock ourselves into place on the firing line. So we have to be able to remove ourselves from the firing line in a fairly quick amount of time. So for example, if you're eliminated from the final, you need to be able to get out of position quickly. So you can't have like the super intricate setup that keeps your chair from moving so much that you can't quickly leave. Okay, I got the visual of someone who forgot to put their brake on. Doesn't really happen, <laughs> luckily. No, I wouldn't think so, because that sounds like, it, it just, I imagine a Roadrunner cartoon, <laughs> and it just is not, <laughs> it's not very professional. Well, I will say, some of us athletes uh, have smart drives on our wheelchair, so it's like a, a motorized fifth wheel, so it can make a manual wheelchair electric. And the new system, the watch, it's Bluetooth connected to the smart drive. So you tap this watch on the rim of your wheelchair, and that's how it goes. So if you forget to turn that off, and you're shaking somebody's hand, putting equipment together, or going through TSA, I've had a teammate go through TSA and just plow a table because they forgot to turn the smart drive off. And uh, yes, it's funny. <laughs> we all, uh, you know, have to share in the laughter of some of these mistakes. I've done it to myself and accidentally run into a wall. So <laughs> the smart drive is super helpful because it absolutely like saves your shoulders. But yeah, don't forget to turn it off. Uh, are athletes allowed to have loaders for the ammunition? 
Yes. So SH2 athletes uh, that use that spring stand, we are allowed to have a loader load the gun for us each shot and make side adjustments. So as they're on the line with us, however, they aren't allowed to talk to us. So if your loader is also, also happens to be your coach, which for a lot of athletes, that's true, they would have to leave their loader role, step back from the line, raise their hand, ask the range officer uh, to speak with us, have whatever conversation they need to have, step back off the line, raise the hand, and then resume loading duties. So they have to keep the two roles separate. Yes, because if you think about it, you know, being up right next to the athlete throughout the entire match, you see a lot more from that perspective than you would as the coach who has to stand however far back from the line. So they want to make that role separate so that no one gets an unfair advantage having that loader coach them when they get to see everything from, you know, such a great spot. But even so, like, what is the hope? Do they ever get denied? Like, no, you've been you've been there for a while. We're not going to let you coach. Not really. Not really. Okay. Um, just because, you know, it is such a distinct line, I guess, because you can't, the loader isn't allowed to talk to us. So if you're talking to an athlete and they're actively shooting, that you can't, you can't be doing that. So they usually pay, the range officers will usually put, pay pretty close attention to what's going on. One of the other things I, I noticed while doing some research is that for your events, are they all mixed competitions with men and women shooting together? Some are mixed, some are not. Currently, some of the SH1 events are separated by gender. All of my SH2 events, the two airgun and then the 50 meter small bore event are all mixed gender. So it kind of just depends on what the event is and how they decide. Yeah, I was going to say, is that mostly because of like number of participants? It can be. Can you talk a little bit about the classification process and what what that's like? Complicated. <laughs> so usually the classification will take place um, the first couple days before training starts at a World Cup. and we it's uh, medical prof professionals that have been trained to put our bodies through a range of movements to see um, either look at strength or restrictions that we have because of our disability um, and then they will classify us from there uh, shooting is fairly straightforward on the classification scale because you either can't hold the gun or you can't you either have core and don't need a backrest or you don't have core and need a backrest. So for some sports like swimming, they have a ton of different classifications based off of you know really tiny differences in disability. For Tokyo, they were talking about doing the classification once you arrive. Is that going to be true though for Team USA or are you able to do that here before you go? So we do not typically get classified at every competition in shooting. So for shooting, you either get a confirmed classification or a reviewable classification. The confirmed classification basically means that you have a disability that isn't going to change. So for me, I have a confirmed classification. For someone that has a progressive disability that can get worse or get better as time goes on, they will have a set timeline for how often they need to have their classification reviewed. I believe it's yearly. 
Right. And certain sports, I know they were changing classifications this time around for some of the track and some of the swimming. Yes. So that's going to throw things into, <laughs> into confusion as well. Thankfully for you, we're keeping it steady. For shooting, I think everything, at least at the moment, is fairly set. So some of our athletes may need to have their classification reviewed at the World Cup before we go to the Games. But I, it's been it's been a long time since we've traveled, so I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work right now. Surprise! <laughs> I was going to say for the those who have the reviewable classification, I think it's safe to assume that, you know, if you go in thinking that you might need to be classified, then you're prepared for it and ready to, you know, deal with that, you know, mentally and physically and know how to recover from it. Let's talk about the uh, 50 meter event outdoors. When you're shooting, how do you account for the elements? And I know that's pretty vague, but I'm I'm always very curious when the wind is wi- uh, going one direction, what do you have to do with your gun to compensate and make sure that the, the bullet stays on target? Uh, there are a lot of different methods that can be used uh, for wind or different elements. I will admit that I am fairly new to small bore. I've only been shooting it for a couple years. And the training center, we don't have an outdoor range. So my time to shoot outdoors is limited. However... One of the biggest things that you can do to work with uh, wind, especially, is using the sighting time that you have before the match. So you have that 15-minute sighting period before your first competition shot that counts and is recorded. And a lot of people will find a, first of all, a dominant condition. So what way does the wind blow at what speed most often? Then they will shoot in that condition and adjust the sights for that condition. So you know that for the most part, you can only shoot in that condition and have it go into the bowl. If the condition changes, you have the choice to wait until your condition returns, or you can uh, do what we call shading. So that's where you purposefully aim off target in order to account for the change in wind. So besides wind, what does heat and humidity uh, do to it? The heat and humidity isn't going to affect the bullet itself too much, but it will affect, you know, your body and how high your heart rate is, how much you're sweating, you know, if you're overheating, especially those 50 meter events, overheating can be a huge issue for people who can't regulate their body temperature as well as an Olympic athlete can. So cool down and warm up systems are very important for us. You know, traveling with an extra blanket, if it's going to be cold, putting a blanket over your lap, traveling with hand warmers, bringing those cooling towels. So when you get them wet and like snap them, put that around your neck, use it on your forehead, whatever it is. So a lot of the heat and humidity is just how it affects you personally. So we all have heard that Tokyo is going to be very hot and very humid, although it might be a little cooler by the time the Paralympics roll around. But what kind of things have you done to prepare for that? So our team has actually looked into like cooling vests where it is a a tight fitting vest on your upper body and you can fill it with cold water or ice and that will kind of circulate around and help you lower your body temperature. You can't wear it in competition because it's so bulky, won't fit under your jacket, but you can wear it before you get up to the line and help keep your body temperature a little bit lower. Um, So that's one of the ideas that we've had. 
And then, you know, just I travel with that cooling towel, I'll stick it in an ice bucket or something <laughs> before everything starts. And uh, really just making sure you stay hydrated. Hydration is absolutely key, especially when you're in hot and humid areas. When I look at shooting, and, and I know it's more than just you point your rifle down and, and hope you're hitting a, a tiny target, but obviously you have to train for this. But so what kind of drills do you do? And, and what are some examples of things you do during practice? A little bit of everything, it seems like. So what has been important, this quad that I've worked with a couple of our coaches on is period periodization. So looking at your calendar, breaking it up into different segments, uh, volume, rest and recovery, a change period, an intensity period. And that can kind of help direct, depending on what period you're in, will help direct the drills that you're doing throughout the day. So if you're in a volume segment, like I am right now, involved with a little bit of change, you're mainly focused on getting shots downrange, getting the repetition in, making sure that, you know, everything is lined up and doing what it needs to do. Um, sometimes it can get a little boring because you're just trying to get so many repetitions in for a day. Um, when you're in an intensity period, which will usually come closer to before a competition, you're not necessarily getting as many shots downrange, but every shot that you're taking counts. So it's the type of day where you don't let yourself have an off shot. You're so into it mentally. A change period is exactly what it sounds like. You know, looking at changing position, equipment, something with your process. So I'm looking to uh, make some slight changes to my table within the next couple weeks. So some of the drills that we can do within that um, for volume, you can shoot a couple matches a day, a few matches more than you would normally do to help get those repetitions in. During an intensity period, one of the games I like to play, I guess, is to see how many shots you can get in a row above a certain score. It just adds a little bit more pressure than just getting those repetitions down. So has the pandemic kind of helped when you want to make adjustments because you've got a little time to play around with stuff or or does having some kind of competition where you can really see if your testing works help as well? Definitely a little bit of both. This has definitely been a very unusual time. It's the only time that we've ever had a delayed games. And I think it's been a challenge for everybody to work through. A lot of people were able to train through the pandemic. I chose not to. I didn't have easy access to a range here in Colorado. I would have had to travel uh, to a different state if I wanted to get the same training in that I had pre-pandemic. I had also just got married four months before, so it gave me, you know, some time to adjust into, you know, a new part of my life. We got married the end of 2019. We had a cat. We got a dog two months after we got married. Um, so there was a lot of change happening, you know, in my personal life. So one of, not regrets, but one thing that I wish I would have changed after Rio is taking a little bit more time off. So in a way, it kind of gave me a little bit of time to just breathe because I think for shooting, we forget to do that. I mean, I'm sure all athletes forget to do that sometimes, but I only took two, about two months off after Rio. 
And I was really starting to feel that was really looking forward to, you know, the downtime after Tokyo. And then when we got to late a year and we're going to have to stay sharp for another year, decided to use, you know, a couple months of that to just take a minute. <laughs> what does competition day look like for you? What kind of rituals do you have? Uh, I live in my headphones <laughs> most of the time. I really like to listen to music. I used to get very anxious, had a lot of nerves going into competitions. And uh, some of my teammates can even tell you that, uh, you, you know, got a little bit snappy, you know, without meaning to just because I was so worked up about going into competition day. But as I gained experience, um, feel like that's definitely calmed down a lot. But I still like to, you know, listen to music, have a warm up routine to make sure that my body can start in the same place every time, you know, being selective about who I have conversations with, if they're going to help me during that day, or if it's a conversation that maybe needs to wait until later. And definitely making sure that I get anxious about time, having enough time to get everything set up. So getting to the range early, getting all my stuff out and ready and being confident in the work that I put in for it. Superstitions? Not really. <laughs> Not really. What's on, what's on your playlist? Oh, it depends on the depends on the day. I'm not really a huge rap fan or techno fan, but other than that, it really just depends on how I'm feeling. Sometimes it's punk rock, sometimes it's country, sometimes it's Christian. Just depends on what I'm feeling. <laughs> so Rio, what was that like? Because is shooting's a cool sport because you can do it for so long. So to go and to be the first U.S. woman to win a Paralympic medal in the sport, well, I guess, how was that? The answer is, well, that's pretty awesome. But talk us through, like, qualifications for Rio and, and all of that. It was pretty awesome. I will definitely <laughs> echo that. Um, <laughs> so going into Rio, um, I was only 20, and I actually had not – medaled at a World Cup in my career up to that point. I had made a couple of finals, but I had not medaled yet. And apparently I was just saving all of it for the games, which I'm totally cool with. Totally cool with that. Um, <laughs> but going into Rio, I had the two air gun events. Uh, standing was up first, and then I shot my prone event. And going the couple months before the games, I had had some issues with the fit of my shooting jacket, which plays a huge role in your stability, especially since I don't get to use that backrest. The shooting jacket, you know, can help my core a lot. So standing, not getting to rest my elbows either, I was really having some struggles being, not necessarily being competitive, but keeping my scores competitive enough to make finals. So going into the games, we decided to use my standing event as a test event um, because the couple months leading up to the games, I had the decision to have mediocre standing and okay prone, or I could have mediocre standing and phenomenal prone. So I decided to put a little bit more, you know, more of my focus on my prone event, which ended up working out great. But using my standing event as a, as a test event, I think really helped me going into my first games because there, I don't know, I guess there wasn't as much pressure on the match because I was going into it wanting to learn as much as I could about what the atmosphere was like, how I was going to react to, you know, the different pressures of being at the games 
and learning how to handle them, respond to them throughout, you know, the competition. So that's exactly what I did. Um, went into my standing match and I shot about my average and finished in 24th place and uh, got to, you know, officially call myself a Paralympian, which was pretty exciting. Um, I was happy that I had maintained good focus. I wasn't super nervous. Um, the thing, you know, learned a few, few little things about, you know, the crowd, how many people were going to be there, how loud it was going to be, and just how the process was going to work. So going into my prone event, I knew that I had put the time in, I knew that my scores were competitive, and I knew how to handle the environment after shooting that standing match. So I get asked a lot of questions about how the prone match felt and, you know, details about all of it. And I don't remember because I found my flow state in that prone match. And when that happens, you know, everything's going well, you're running your process perfectly, you're taking breaks when you need to, your mind is clear, heart rate under control, and everything just went right. I remember coming off the line and my coach asking me how I felt about that competition. I knew what my score was. I didn't know where I was on the leaderboard and, you know, I just got to tell him that it felt amazing. It felt so good, you know, regardless of where I had finished, I was so happy with the performance that I had put in during the match. And then my coach told me that I'd finished in third. <laughs> so top eight make the finals. I was sitting in third going into the final. Everything starts over from zero. So you shoot, two series of five shots in two and a half minutes. And then you move on to single shots that are fired on command in, uh, you have a 30 second period uh, to get that shot off. So not a lot of room for, for error in prone. So I remember as soon as my match had finished, I, you know, waved to my parents who were able to uh, come down to Rio and watch me compete. And I put my headphones in because this was my first really important final. And my coach knew that a lot of my fellow either teammates or friends from around the world that also competed were going to come up and congratulate me and um, just needed to have some space to myself because I was excited. I can't get too excited yet because, you know, event's not over. So going into the final, had talked with my coach a little bit just about really anything. We just kind of shoot the breeze, hang out, talked a little bit just about life and not necessarily about, you know, the nerves of the final. And uh, going into the final, we have a shorter siding and preparation time. So as soon as I got in, I had a couple small issues with the stability of my wheelchair. We were able to get that remedied. And my first couple shots were a little scary. They were, uh, <laughs> they were not up to standard, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, so we were able to get that fixed and, um, the final started and what I remember from the final, my head was clear. I wasn't having any racing thoughts, didn't really have any nerves. It was a little bit louder. You know, you have the announcer talking through everything, you know, talking about how the shooters are doing, uh, where everybody's ranked. Um, so I had a slightly elevated heart rate, which was okay. You know, exciting times. <laughs> But I remember about halfway through the final, I think they had just eliminated sixth place. The one thought, like clear thought that I had in my head was, I'm going to medal today. And we kind of smiled a little bit. 
we, you know, accepted the thought and, uh, and we did, um, that was, that was like, undescri- you know, indescribable. It's really hard to describe that moment when fourth place was eliminated, you know, for sure that you've won a medal. It's just a matter of, you know, what color you're going to earn. And I knew my dad was in the crowd crying. <laughs> I knew both my, my, my mom had access to my, uh, my Facebook page and they were posting updates and looking back on those now, you know, they were so clear, their excitement in that moment. And, uh, uh, I remember the excitement of knowing that I was going to medal, but really motivated to, you know, keep my second place position and had, a. Okay shot wasn't great, but the other shooter had a really phenomenal shot. And on that last one, it was just enough to overtake my lead. So brought home bronze instead of silver. But for my first Paralympics and my first medal, I was over the moon, over the moon. I remember uh, getting back uh, after getting back to uh, my coach and my loader uh, came back with me. And uh, my coach was sitting, the athletes were sitting in front. And then there was a row of chairs just behind us for our coaches. And my coach whispered in my ear, uh, you know, congratulations and everything. And then uh, he said, I made the mistake of looking back in the crowd and finding your parents after fourth place was eliminated. And it made me cry too. (laughs) So my coach had found my parents and both of them were just, you know, over the moon thrilled. They, you know, helped me get started. And he's like, yeah, definitely kind of made a mistake looking at them at that moment. But (laughs) um, everybody was super, super excited for me in that moment. What has that medal and accomplishment done for the sport and for people getting into it? It has opened so many doors, I think. Our last shooting medal was in 2004 in Athens, and I was the first female to win a Paralympic shooting medal. So I think I, I, I think that bringing home the medal in Rio would open the door for other up-and-coming disabled shooters to get going. Um, I don't think many people, you know, many people don't realize that shooting is in the summer games, let alone Paralympic shooting. So really, if anything, I just hope that bringing home the medal and bringing more light to uh, the sport changed people's lives like it did mine. Because I know, like I met my husband through sport, I earned my degree because of shooting and I just, I just wouldn't be here without the sport. So I hope that other people find their passion through it as well. In the years since, since you stayed in the sport, has being Paralympic medalist been a burden or a motivator for you as you've moved on? A little bit of both. (laughs) Um, Try really hard to keep it in check, but sometimes it can be a little intimidating going into another games feeling like you need to defend that title or the expectations that you think that people may have because oftentimes they're not there but you know if you think the expectation is there that's more added pressure right but I also think that I've become a better athlete since Rio I'm really excited about the 50 meter event being added for us SH2 shooters so I'm really just motivated to go in and see what all of my work 
over the last, you know, four years since Rio has come to, because I think that even with all of the, all of the craziness that has occurred over the last year, that we've also had the opportunity of time that most people aren't given. All right. Have you found in these last four years, the ability to tap into that flow state is easier or is that still something you have to work really hard on because that's that that the flow state is pretty awesome to feel but it can is sometimes elusive it's sometimes it can be and i think the best athlete doesn't rely on flow because sometimes it doesn't come and you have to know how to work with yourself to produce the best result because you're not always going to have the best conditions. You're not always going to have the best sleep or the best nutrition. So I think that it's almost better to train with distraction without the ideal conditions because then you know you're ready for it when the opportunity comes. You know, you're prepared for whatever may happen. Fun stuff about Rio. I wanted you because you were done early. I was. Um, fun stuff about Rio. First moment, first memory, favorite memory of Rio was before competition even started. Getting out of the longest travel day, it felt like, after going through team processing and all of the emotion that came with getting the gear and the you know the swag. You get your fitted for your ring and you're tired. You're hungry don't know how you can stay awake any longer and then you get off the bus go through security and walk into the village for the first time that was one of my aha moments I guess if you will when I really felt like was really a Paralympian so that was really really fun moment another fun memory was I was actually able to my parents came in the day before opening ceremonies. And at that point you could still bring guests into the village. So they came, immediately came from the airport. So had all of their bags and everything came directly to the village and they were able to see uh, where I was living for the three weeks that I was there. They were able to get, you know, meet a couple of my international friends. And then they were also doing the team USA welcoming ceremony that day. So they got to witness that as well. So to get to share that moment with them was really cool. And I think just getting the opportunity to spend so much time with international friends after the competition was over, because I think that's one of the things that I love most about especially the parachuting community is how close everybody is. Um, some of my closest friends are also my biggest competitors. <laughs> how much of a pain is it to travel with a gun, your gear and a wheelchair? It is ridiculous. Sometimes actually most of the time, <laughs> because not only when you're in a wheelchair, um, you can't carry the majority of the of your gear on your own. So you're relying on the staff that are sent on trips. And sometimes we don't have enough help. So it can be travel can be a little complicated. But yeah, wheelchairs, gear, guns is another extra added stressor when traveling. Um, so many different rules in different countries, you really have to make sure that you're on top of, you know, getting the right paperwork in order before you leave. So uh, definitely thankful for the staff that we've had on trips because they make the travel process so much easier. Last question for me about shooting. And Allison is going to give me a dirty look for this. Has anyone 
ever joked and it or is this just a bad joke if somebody goes well aren't you worried about shooting your eye out that is a bad joke (laughs) the regular public just go oh you'll shoot your eye out kid i think the hardest part is just the the negative connotation that can come with shooting um and you know just around guns because it can be you know, definitely can definitely be an unknown for many people who only get to see the, you know, more negative and scary side of guns in the media. And, you know, that's not what we're doing. Not even close. Um, we really want to be good ambassadors for the sport. You know, range safety and gun safety are absolutely paramount, you know, anytime that we're on the range. And um, I think really at the end of the day, we just want to be those ambassadors and promote the sport in a positive light because it has changed lives. It's changed, you know, it's a, a high school, college sport. It has changed middle school and high school kids for the better, giving them something to, to focus on. And I just hope that we can continue to inspire the next generation of shooting sports athletes. Thank you so much, McKenna. You can follow McKenna on Facebook. She's at McKenna's Dream. On Instagram, she is Kenna Dahl 10.9. That's D-A-H-L. And on Twitter, she is Kenna Dahl. And we will have links to all of those in the show notes. This weekend, she is competing at the World Shooting Para Sport World Cup Lima, which takes place from June 10th through 19th and is the final event before Paralympic team selection. So cheer her on this weekend. And, you you know, World Shooting Parasport said on Facebook that they are going to live stream the finals. So hopefully we can watch her in action. So between that, swimming and diving and track and field trials starting, my family is now no longer, no longer going to see me without some sort of screen being carried around room to room. Possibly two. I know. It is not just the, oh, what screen, what's the screen situation going to be? It is also the house decor. When do I get that started? And right, you got to work that in. Yeah. And then all the other preparations, like we'll have a daily newsletter. We'll have other stuff. We've got to check in with all of the things in the Tokyo 2020 fan zone, and including like the predictions game that they're going to have and figure that out. So much to do. So excited. Oh, you know what we need? Hmm. We need recipes. Oh, <gasps> yeah. Olympic we need snacks. a Shuklistan cookbook. That's right. For Tokyo. Yes. So, listeners, if you have recipes, I'm looking at you, superfan Sarah, but I know others of you, Meredith, probably have some good eats planned for watching. Send them to us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or uh, drop them in our Facebook group and we will compile those and put them out. So either with a Japanese theme or Olympic theme. Mm Mm-hmm. Or a particular sport theme. We'll take anything. Right? We like food. <laughs> I got my recipe. It's called popcorn. <laughs> I think this time I'm actually going to have to make the Jello Olympic rings. Oh, wow. That is doing an effort. Because those those are tricky. It'll be like pentathlon because there are Right? Or you take five. one Jello mold and do five layers. One ring Jello mold. Five layers of Jello. I think that's taking a shortcut. I think that's like the person who jumps in the marathon at mile 20. Okay. Okay. 
Either it's go also big the or go that, home. That, well, we don't eat a whole lot of Jello in our house, so that would be the solution for it. <laughs> Otherwise, I would be eating five rings worth of Jello, and I don't think that's a good idea. Sugar free. <laughs> 40 calories a box. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. Welcome to Shukflistan. It is time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests who have been on the show and are now citizens of our country, Shukflistan. Paralympian John Register was named Tackle What's Next's Athlete of the Month for June. This organization serves as a community and support team for athletes transitioning to from sport to what's next. Hurdler Don Harper Nelson has qualified for the U.S. track and field Olympic trials. Due to meddling at the world champs in the previous four years, her time has not yet met the standard. But I have no doubt it will. Because you don't want to tell Don Harper Nelson no. Taekwondo athlete Madeline Gorman-Shore won gold at the Pan American Champs. Keegan Randall is stepping down from her role as a member of the IOC due to, as she said, unfortunate and unforeseen circumstances. So they will be replacing her on the Athletes Commission, but we don't have too many more details on that yet. Beach volleyball players Kelly Clace and Sarah Sponsel won their second tournament in a row with the gold medal at the final Olympic qualifier in Ostrava peaking at the right time i know it's so exciting and bmx writer connor fields is continuing a partnership with ralph lauren which included an instagram post <laughs> where it was the ralph lauren olympic kendall <laughs> not really he just looked like it and it was really great Samantha Schultz is competing at the 2021 Modern Pentathlon World Champs. For the women's relay, she paired with Claire Green, and the two of them have finished in 10th place. So uh, there's a post in our Facebook group that's got more details of how they did in each stage of the competition, but good work for them. Uh, Samantha competes again on Thursday, June 10th in the women's competition. And Luca Jones will be competing in the Canoe Slalom World Cup event this weekend in Prague, the Czech Republic. Competing for a spot at Tokyo this weekend, Laura Wilkinson in uh, diving. The, the prelims are happening right now while we're taping. So I've been monitoring the Twitter feed and try, trying to figure out how she's doing. They're in like the third round right now. But So calm down. Yes, I know. It's just I'm on the edge of my seat. I hope she makes the semis. That will be tonight. This is Wednesday the 9th. But, and then the finals will be Sunday night. Tom Scott, our karate athlete, will be competing in the Karate 2020 Olympic Qualification Tournament in Paris from June 11th through 13th. So big weekend for him to send him some good vibes. Before we move on to Tokyo 2020 news, Book Club is coming up this fall, but because we didn't, we didn't have time for it before Tokyo. But we're reading Ben Ryan's Seven, Seven's Heaven, which is about the... Uh, Fiji Rugby Sevens teams winning gold for the first time, first medal for that country, and also the uh, at the first time Rugby Sevens was at the Olympics. So it's I'm working on it. It's a really good read. You can get it through our bookshop.org site. That's bookshop.org slash shop 
slash flamealifepod. We get a commission from all books purchased through that link. So, and that goes towards funding our coverage at Beijing 2022. Oh my goodness. So, we are so close. So, so much news. And we're going to say it's going to be so close every week. It is, you know, and honestly, I was complaining about it being hot, but it being hot really did, you know, I've been wearing shorts all week and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's the summer. We're having the summer Olympics. It's like something about this week flipped the switch for me. And I think I've said this like every week and yet it keeps amping up. I got to tell you, by the time Tokyo comes, I think my head is going to explode. (laughs) With all the people to cheer for? All the people to cheer for, all the excitement, this whole, you know, that extra year just kind of built more into it. Lots oh, of things from Tokyo. Exciting, exciting news. They, uh, The organizing committee released all of the things for the victory ceremonies. So they, podiums, theme music, costumes, metal trays, all of it revealed. All of it super exciting. Did you see this? Did you watch these videos? I did not watch these videos, but I am going to go back now that because their reveal videos have always been very good for the, the I remember when they revealed the torch, that video was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't surprise me. So I watched the uh, making of the podiums video. And this was all recycled material, recycled plastic, 3d printing. They're made in like squares and that are put together almost like a Lego block. But they have qualities that tie in with the logo with all these small squares that the Tokyo logo has. And uh, they're, they're very cool. I will say that. The music is fine. It's, I, wanna say, I don't want to say it's generic, but it, it is. It's very Western. The composer said he did not want to really have a super Japanese sound influencing this anthem. So it's kind of very... It's a very fanfare type sound to it. By, by contrast, the costumes are very Japanese. Yes, they are. They have layers to them and they're kind of flowing, but they also look cool because I think that's one of the things the costume designer said. You couldn't go too full on Japanese because it would be so hot. Right, but it has that kimono shape mm-hmm. and the, the reminiscent of kind of the, that robe quality to it but the fabric looks very light and breezy right so those that beautiful shade of blue that they've been using throughout Mm -hmm. and then the trays are kind of simple but they're also very elegant in that they're kind of shaped like a fan almost because they they have a kind of a wide wider curve on the outside and the metals lay nicely on them it's so funny because when we were when you were talking about the music i never noticed that there was different music for the different olympics in the medal ceremonies and i i mean other than obviously the the different um anthems for the the winning uh, for the gold medalist mm-hmm. but that that sort of entry setup music was different i wonder how long that's been true that's a good question that's something to look at because i want to say that at salt lake city when i saw a medal ceremony that they had special music for that but i don't know what it was so something to look into when did the medal ceremony become things that had to be designed probably when they introduced the podium kit kit and more kit oh, so exciting so team india released its kit 
Team GB released its formal wear, and the Australians released their luggage. And then I saw today on Instagram, Team New Zealand has started processing. So they've been showing off pieces of their kit. Oh, man. The GB formal wear, though, may, is going to make all the Olympians look like James Bond, even the women. <laughs> it's very, very uh, understated suits. Very okay. chic, very quiet, very British. Um, the uh, India kit is white with blue and orange accents, and the orange is kind of flame-like going across their torsos. We have an affinity to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. And then the Australian luggage, I mean, that threw me for a loop, but it's it's nice. It's green and yellow and says Australia and looks like it holds a lot. Well, they get a lot of pieces of, of st- stuff. And then they smuggle all these things back home. <laughs> like from Rio, how many people have told us about the blankets that they came right. home with? <laughs> so they need luggage for that. Got to stuff that in a duffel bag. Uh, the IOC named its refugee team this week. So they had 55 hopefuls in the pool and they selected 29 athletes in 12 sports. And then they also took coaches and, and officials in uh, this is up. The, t- the team is larger than Rio's team, which was only 10 people. So, I mean, it's nice that more refugees are getting the opportunity at the same time. It's, sad that there are more refugees who need the opportunity the gender balance is 19 men and 10 women and at the ioc press conference this week that revealed the refugee team uh james mcleod who's with the ioc said that in an ideal world they would want to be gender equal here but they don't have that luxury in a refugee situation so uh they took that into effect, but they also looked at sporting elements and geography and tried to build a balanced team. You know, it's some COVID-related changes. Uh, Prime Minister Suga is not having a foreign dignitary reception on opening ceremony day that usually the prime minister, the head of state has, which that's kind of a bummer. Could I just, when I, when I read that, I wanted to be in the room for that party. Can you imagine? Oh, I would think it would be really boring. Because everyone would be on their best behavior. Best behavior, yeah. But, you know, if some of them know each other pretty well, and then if Joe Biden was there, President, if President Biden was there, you know, he loves talking to people. <laughs> so Uncle Joe like, might hey, get us Justin. into trouble again. Hey, Justin. Hey, Macron. <laughs> What's up? Yo, Angela. <laughs> that would be me. To be quite honest. And then uh, another gray cloud, silver lining element, is that about half the volunteers for the cycling road race have withdrawn. So they had started with uh, 142 volunteers. They're down to 78. The organizing committee said, yeah, there could be more dropouts at this month's training because they've been having monthly trainings, but they are not considering additional recruitment of volunteers because they don't think that level of drop-off is going to affect the event. Well, they've had a huge drop-off overall or drop-out of volunteers. Yeah, and I wonder if they just over-recruit thinking that people aren't going to show up or if they recruit and have too many and they're just kind of all over each other. 
Well, it can also, I mean, I'm sure this is all about COVID, you know, people not wanting to travel from other places in Japan. And because you're having so many fewer visitors, athletes there at one time, that the dropout isn't going to have a, a, a great effect because they don't need as many people at any one time. Right. I mean, the village is only going to be half full at any given time. Right. Never mind the lack of visitors. So if anything, the dropouts have prevented firings. That and or having too many volunteers, because I've been have you been in those situations where you volunteered for an event and there are like 10 people in your group when like five would do. And so everybody's trying to crawl all over each other to do the thing that you're there to do. And nobody's happy about it. Right. So they'll be the ones that will be there will have their jobs. And I think there will be more than enough. And it'll it'll be fine. I feel like I'm Ann Allison saying the wedding is going to be fine. Just don't worry. I'll fix it with some ribbon and soda water. It'll be fine. Oh, and I know we're not doing Atlanta moments. Well, but you have an Atlanta message. Oh, my goodness. So Francis Gilles de la Bordonnais. I believe is how he pronounces his name. He earned a Tokyo 2020 spot in the men's singles class 10 uh, table tennis tournament. He had a dramatic win at the world qualification tournament in Lashko in Slovenia. He is a three-time Paralympic champion, earning two titles at Atlanta 1996. And then he also won gold at uh, Sydney 2000, and he's a nine-time Paralympic medalist overall. You so know. he he in and of it himself is an Atlanta moment. That's right. That's right. Fantastic. <laughs> I also know that we don't want to have a ton of IOC news, but you know what? <laughs> they, they, they keep coming out with things that we just can't keep to ourselves. Right. So they're going to sell NFT pins. So if uh, you're not familiar with NFTs, that stands for non-fungible tokens. So basically, it's a digital file of something and you own it and nobody else has the rights to it unless you sell it. So it would be like a piece of artwork in a sense that could change hands, but you'd have to sell it in order for it to change hands. That's about as much as I know about these things. And can This is like the around. Bitcoin of Olympic pens. Right. So the IOC is getting in on this trend and they're going to sell NFT pins. They will be sold and distributed on nwayplay.com starting on June 17th. They will cost between $9 and $499 per pack. So some of these ain't cheap. And they will have a peer-to-peer online marketplace later this year for you to trade your NFT pins. And... Uh, they're also going to have some cross-play multiplayer video games, and it sounds like you might be able to earn NFT pins by playing that or an Olympic video game that's due out before Beijing. So I think part of the NFT appeal is that you can use these pins as prizes for these games and not have to do actual item fulfillment, which is tough. But on the flip side... I posted about this in one of the pin collector trading groups on Facebook and nobody was happy about them. Well, I think it's a mistake 
to think of these as a replacement for pins. And I think they, the IOC may have made a mistake calling it pin trading because I think this idea of an online marketplace for this other unique item could attract a whole other group of people. You know, the same people who use Discord for their video games and have this different vision of online collecting. But physical pin collectors are not going to want to muddy the waters. Right. It's sort of like how when they call it vegan chicken. Mm -hmm. No, it could be good in and of itself, but it's not chicken. So let's give it a different name entirely. It'll be interesting to see who they target. Are they hoping that somebody who prefers having a virtual collection of things wants a pin pack that's $500? Or are they thinking that actual pin collectors, physical pin collectors, are their market? So it'll. I'm curious to see what this will be like. I, I don't want any NFT pins, but I also don't collect regular pins. I am not a collector. I don't want NFT pins because I would lose them. They would go into the black hole of all of the files that are on my computer. I don't have my photos organized. How can I have pins organized? And I like looking at them. I would not pull them up all the time. Yeah, I don't have the collector mindset, so this is I they are not targeting me. And one more bit of news. Oh no. Also this week the IOC has reallocated medals from five events. And guess what? Three of them are weightlifting from London. Oh. So yeah, three of the events were from weightlifting, one from javelin competition in London, and then a cross-country relay in Pyeongchang has been reallocated as well. For a second, I thought you were going to tell me that Michelle Carter moved up again. Because <laughs> she well, moved up the, like three spaces. The, she's just a the, step away from getting a London medal 10 years later. <laughs> they're on the throwing events, so maybe they'll work there. A javelin comes before shot put in alphabetical order. So. Michelle, you may still win that London medal. <laughs> and on that note... Hold on. In uh, round four of the preliminaries, Laura Wilkinson has scored 205.05 points. Calm down, Jill. Calm down. (laughs) They're playing kids' bop. (laughs) (laughs) So excited for her. I'm going to go watch it now. (laughs) Right. I am too. So let's get out of here. That will uh, do it for this week. Let us know what you think about parachuting. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta, and keep the Flame Alive Podcast group on Facebook. Speaking of Ben Ryan's book, 7-7, we are having him on next week to talk about Rugby 7s. So join us then for his story. And as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.
costumes they've always had, you know, what the what the metal girls wear. Can you call them something different? <laughs> no. Because there's metal boys, too. They have men and women's costumes for that. Just cut the whole thing out, because I'm not saying anything else besides metal girls, because that's what I call them. Okay. Maybe I'll leave it in. Maybe I'll, it in. maybe I'll leave it in. 